I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. Thanks be to God. Amen. 
a couple of years ago now, I think, uh, I was, we were at a pub theology, uh, and, and we set up the sound system, I, maybe it might have been two years ago now, and this, this woman um, walks up to me in the parking lot after we're done, uh, and she says, I have to know, I have to know, who are you all? <laughs> who are you people? Like, what exactly was going on back there? She was confused by my collar, confused by my being female in a collar, confused by the fact that I was wearing a Kingstown Communion t-shirt on top of that collar. Um, it was quite the fashion statement. Um, confused that I had all of this on and had a beer in my hand, and she had to know like what was going on there. And so I went back inside the bar, and I pulled up a seat at the table next to her. I thought I was on my way out. No such luck. I decided might as well have a conversation. And, uh, and I shared a little bit about why we were at the bar, and Amy was her name. Um, she introduced herself and, and began to share in return about herself. And she said, well, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in the Bible. I don't like organized religion. I can't stand self-righteous, judgmental Christians. And at the risk of sounding judgmental this morning myself, I have to say that she pretty much gave every list of, it's like the atheist creed, right, um, of, of why, they, why they would not believe. Um, what she said to me across the table might as well have been the atheist creed. Still, I do, I do wonder how many of us would agree with many of the words that she said, or at some point in our life would agree with many of those words. I kept running into Amy every time we went back to the pub for pub theology again. Uh, and at one point, Amy announced to me that she had upgraded from atheism to agnosticism. More time passed, and the next time I saw her, she admitted that she didn't really reject Christianity itself, but rather the ways that it had been packaged. And finally, after many conversations, um, I, I think I first met Amy two years ago, and I still know her, she still is there, I run into her occasionally after many, many conversations. Amy's original question of what exactly is going on here had transformed into this deeper question. What is the least I can believe and still be a Christian? <laughs> We've been working our way through the sermon series um, entitled Defining Our Terms, and um, we put out this bold claim that Perhaps a lot of these words that have been used over the years and through denominations to, to, that seem to be counter to one another, maybe we can hold them together. And so we say, what if, what, what if, for those of you who have not been with us up till now, what if we could claim that we are evangelical and liturgical and orthodox and Catholic and Wesleyan and Bible-based and spirit-filled and liberal, and that those things do not compete with one another? What if we could do that? Maybe we could. One United Methodist pastor, Reverend Martin Thielen, wrote a book with this title of her question, this title of what is the least I have to believe to be a Christian. He says it's one of the most commonly asked questions of pastors, yet also the question we'd most like to avoid answering. We really don't want you to ask that question, if we're honest. Just to be clear, I have no intention today of... Um, 
of doing what he does in his book, this, this Reverend Thielen. He, he outlines 10 statements which Christians should reject and then 10 statements which Christians should absolutely believe, and I think that conversation is relatively unproductive. I do, however, agree with both Amy and Reverend Thieland in, in that this is an important question. What is the, the minimum we have to believe to be a Christian? And this is the question that is at the heart of the word we define today. This word orthodox, not just a denomination, not just capital O orthodox that you may have heard, Russian orthodox, Eastern orthodox, Greek orthodox, there are um, many various um, regions that, that, that observe orthodoxy, this is a word that belongs first to the church universal. And this word just means right belief. So at the heart of the question today, at the heart of this word, is that question that Amy asked, what is the minimum I have to believe to be a Christian? That's the personal question, though. That's the personal question we're talking about what our church is, how our church lives out our faith in the world, the question is, what is the church to teach? What right belief is the church to teach? I was once in a Bible study in which one of the men in the group said that his defining question when he encounters doubt in his own beliefs is, does this matter for my salvation? Have you ever heard that before? While that is a challenging way to analyze things also, I also find this completely unproductive for this, conversa for this conversation. And such a question will only lead more to more confusion and more frustration. We search for ways to make sure that we are not left out of this whole deal of being Christian. If I don't believe the minimum of what I have to believe to be a Christian, what does that say about me? Will I be saved? This, we, have, we get caught up in making sure that our beliefs ensure our salvation, and this just leads to failure and disappointment and a whole lot of fear. However, this question, what is the least I have to believe to be a Christian, is still an important one. Our history as the church is, is, is very much based on a firm foundation of attempting to answer this very question. And our chosen method for doing so throughout the ages has been in what we call a creed. The word creed comes from this Latin word credo, meaning I believe, and that's what creeds are. They are statements or professions of faith, generally starting with the short but powerfully charged words that, that one person around the confirmation fire pit said, I'm not sure if I can even deal with these, those powerfully charged words, I believe. Most of our creeds originated in times of conflict about doctrines when the church struggled to define itself amidst heresies and dissenting beliefs. And these creeds started out as this shorthand way of entering into these conversations a way of making room to enter into the grand discussion of what do we believe. To, to speak a creed is to enter into a dialogue with all the foundational beliefs, all the traditional beliefs, all the orthodox beliefs, all the right beliefs that the church has to offer. 
but it was important in the midst of the debates that raged over the heresies of the time to recognize that this was an open discussion, an ongoing discussion. Many of the great fathers and mothers of the church disagreed over the theology at hand. This is how the Catholic and or the Western Church and the Eastern Church, what we know today as the capital C Catholic Church and the capital O Orthodox Church, this is how 1054 happened when the first great schism happened and all the great schisms that came after that. We argue and we debate and we deliberate because this common language in the creeds then has to be wrestled with. All the things stuffed into the creeds were what the church felt to be the least amount needed to be a Christian. That is a heck of a lot. That is a heck of a lot least to be a Christian. All these things stuffed into the creed, but as time passed, they became yardsticks, right? They became yardsticks. They became measuring tools. This is how this great schism of 1054 happened, holding up their measuring tools to one another. The Western and Eastern churches could not agree. The secret handshakes of the church, they offered a clear line of orthodoxy. They offered a clear line of right belief, a line beyond which you could be left out in the cold. They are ways of determining who is in and who is out. And the, the skeptics, I feel like I have some skeptics here today, probably felt a little skeptical as you're saying that second song we sang today. I'm saying these words, but I'm not exactly sure if I believe all these things. The skeptics of the world unite. <laughs> these sorts of yardsticks don't do much except to serve as ways to exclude. If we were to say together the Apostles' Creed, which we pretty much did when we sang earlier, we would say things like, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And I wonder if we do. Do we? We profess a belief in a virgin birth, yet we hear biblical scholars arguing even today over the translations of these words from Isaiah and Matthew and Luke upon which we base that belief, and we wonder, is that true? Does it matter if it's true? We say we believe in one holy Catholic universal, little c Catholic and apostolic church, and yet we look around us to find that same church, fragmented, breaking into all these various parts, starting with 1054 again. In our church heritage, we have employed a couple of significant yardsticks. So let's look at the two yardsticks, the two main yardsticks. First is the familiar one, the, the Apostles' Creed, right? And it has this murkier history. Our earliest mention of it comes from um, a letter dating back to 390 AD from a man named Ambrose of Milan to the Pope at the time, and yet the creed has almost undoubtedly gone like through many changes since. It contains strong statements on the personhood and divinity of Jesus Christ, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, suffered, died, rose again. It concludes with, with more broad statements such as, as belief in the universal church and resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. And, and somewhere amidst the measurement, the measurement marks we hear, we find that question again. 
But like seriously, what is the least I can believe out of all of that and still be a Christian? Even earlier than the Apostles' Creed is the Nicene Creed, begun um, by the First Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., uh, an ecumenical council, multiple um, people from multiple different areas of the, um, of the, this Christian church, and the Emperor Constantine the First. You have heard this guy, I'm sure. Roman Emperor, whose um, his, his conversion to Christianity immediately skyrocketed this this religion into all the mainstream. It became all the rage to be a Christian as soon as the kings became one. So Constantine called together all of the major church leaders of the day, all the disparate bishops and the priests, and he had them try to form some consensus for the church as it moved ahead. And some, some of the outcomes of the council included setting the dates for Easter and developing the polity and system and rules that govern the, the, the internal structures of the church. But regardless of its origin, the creed became a defining measure for Trinitarian doctrine, again, for the church. And those who would not uphold it were exiled. Their words were declared illegal, and they were burned. These creeds were dialogues written down when tensions flourished and disagreements threatened to divide the church. But they are not the original creeds. They are not the earliest professions of faith. Did you hear it today in Thomas's account? Thomas, perhaps inappropriately, given his most notable title, the doubter, sees the resurrected Christ before him, and after being commanded to believe, he proclaims this line, My Lord and my God, my Lord and my God, this is it, folks. This is the closest thing we're ever going to get to an answer to that question. What is the least I can believe and still be a Christian? If we asked, what is the least I can believe and still be a Christian, this is it. It, is, it seems to be simple enough. This is long before, long before all these other people... <laughs> All these other councils gathered. This was the profession of faith we find in the faith of the disciples. It must be. Because Thomas certainly gets the short end of the stick, right? With the nickname the doubter tacked on for all eternity for Thomas. After all, he was only willing to profess this when actually standing before the risen Christ himself. He had to see, to believe. Oh, ye of little faith, Thomas. <laughs> Yet Thomas teaches us all something incredibly profound about what it means to be orthodox, what it means to have right belief. He shows us that belief in Jesus doesn't come in an assertion of complex doctrinal statements Belief in Jesus doesn't come in the adoption of high church words like transubstantiation and penal substitutionary theory of atonement. These apparently simple words from Thomas could be used to sum up the entire gospel, my Lord and my God. 
This is a creedal statement. This is orthodox belief. This is what it means to be a church that is orthodox. This is what it means to be a person who subscribes to an orthodox set of beliefs. And the simplicity, or at least the brevity of this revelation, begs for inspection today. My Lord and my God. The first word that jumps out of out for you, or it should, or maybe it's the one you look over, is my. What we have here is intimate. It's personal. This is credo at its best. Thomas could have easily said, the Lord and the God. Or, oh wow, it's actually you. I think most of us would have, would have had some other colorful words to say at that moment. Holy. <laughs> and and there, there would have been nothing wrong with that either, right? We're, we're, we're dumbfounded. We, we, we don't know. Thomas, my Lord and my God, he could have said all these other things, but it would not have held a profession of faith, the profession of I believe, captured within the word my, captured within the word my, that little two, two, so small. Thomas is not announcing the realities of who this man standing before them is. That would have been a waste of his time. The other disciples had already seen the risen Christ before Thomas, seen the wounds in his hands and in his side, and felt him breathe the Holy Spirit upon them one last time, and, and yet notice that not a one of them makes this profession that alone, that alone should vindicate Thomas. No, Thomas is not proclaiming something for the benefit of those around him. He is professing his faith in a risen Lord and Savior, the word made flesh standing before him, his Lord, my Lord. What does it mean to profess Jesus as our Lord and our God when pastors prepare for their ordination exams? year. Um, this is the question that gives us the most angst every time, every single time. Because we know that, that, that what they're looking for in this is not some theolog theological treatise from us. I, they, they're not looking for me to talk about the substitutionary atonement, but rather evidence of a personal encounter with God in which you let God consume your entire existence and way in the world. To call him Lord is to announce to all the powers that be that we do not recognize their sovereignty over us. It's saying aloud for all to hear that we bow to nothing else, no one but the living Lamb of God. It binds us together as the servants of a master who tells us, love one another, friend and enemy alike, regardless of governmental determined categories, do we fully comprehend the incredible and terrible weight of that profession? And more importantly, if we profess it, do we give it due diligence? Do we live lives that bear witness to Christ our Lord as the one who calls us to feed the hungry, and clothe the naked and care for the sick. We 
We must stop acting as if when we call him Lord, we don't really mean it. Jesus, our Lord. But Jesus is also our God. Naming him our God is to say that in him we meet more of the creator than we could ever hope to see. Acknowledging him to be God is to say that he is the fulfillment, the climax of a long story that began in a garden and will someday end in the perfection of creation. Naming him as God is to say he is part of the relationship with the creator of heaven and earth that we know is Trinity. <laughs> Calling him God is recognizing the power of God's love and God's grace, the extreme links to which God will go to get what God wants, even surrender under, under the judgment of man and even death on a cross. There's immense power in the shortest of creeds. My Lord and my God. This affirmation is something that should and will profoundly change us. It should. It certainly did for Thomas. And Jesus tells us that it will certainly be that much more powerful for those of us who profess it without having even seen. It should be noted that this is the concluding story of John's gospel. This is the very last thing he says. And he tells us very clearly why that is. He tells us that while Jesus did many other signs before his disciples, which are not written in this book, and I, that drives me absolutely insane to think that Jesus did all other things I don't know about. Why weren't they written down? He says they weren't written in this book. These are written that we may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing we might have life in his name. John repeatedly refers to the miracles of Jesus as signs, signs of the inbreaking of God's kingdom, and, and signs that this man is the promised redeemer. In this phrase, my Lord, my God, we are given all we need, all we need for salvation. These things are written, not that we should have proof or evidence, but that we might believe. It is interesting that we have no indication that Thomas actually ever even touched the nail holes in Jesus' hands. It doesn't actually tell us that. He just exclaimed, my Lord, my God. No, these signs were written with, with this story in particular at the end so that we, like Thomas, might fall to our knees and profess Jesus as our Lord and our God. I don't know if you noticed in the scripture today, it said not only is he known to us as the doubter, it said Thomas, who was also known as the twin. You notice that? Mm -hmm. It's a weird phrase. Um, there's nowhere in scripture that, that alludes, there's nowhere in history and historical documents that, that, that allude to Thomas having a brother or a, a sister. I mean, I guess you could... Um, there's no, no siblings mentioned uh, at all. Most people think that he didn't. And, but even if he did, why would they never mention but then say he was always called the twin? It, it makes no sense, except if you know who John is. John, this writer, is a pretty poetic guy. Um, and scholars like to think that he's saying Thomas is our twin. <laughs> that that we, are, we are the ones who are... are, are waiting to see, waiting to see Jesus, 
waiting to get proof, waiting for the next sign, Thomas illuminates in us where we are. We're Thomas's twin. Like Thomas, who was given a bad rap <laughs> throughout history, um, who needed to see, who failed to believe without seeing first, but professed the greatest orthodox statement we could ever say. Uh, we, we too are going to fail. We are not going to believe everything in that creed. And there will be days like when our lives do not reflect that we believe in Jesus as our Lord or in Jesus as our God. But there's this beautiful posture, I would say, um, with all of the, the emphasis of the church to get us to believe, I believe Jesus was about getting us to behold. There is, there's something about, you notice Thomas never actually touched the wounds. Um, it's like he saw them and he was stunned and in awe and he beheld the scene before him. Just and there's wonder in that and there's glory in that and there's mystery in that and there's doubt in beholding. There's not really doubt in believing. You gotta believe or you don't believe. I don't believe that Jesus, and I, I, I don't think we see Jesus asking us to believe. Jesus asks us to behold this good news, behold what's before us, stand in awe of it, stand in awe of its mystery, and stand with one another in that mystery. Would you pray with me? God, today we behold your greatness. We know that the job of the church is to be a place that presents right belief, that, that gives, as Alyssa said, this guide, this map, to help us in, on this road towards belief. And many have argued over this and split over this, and this is how we go from little, little O Orthodox to big O Orthodox, so many things we can't believe. Thank God that every time we break and we fracture, just as the United Methodist Church is right now, it's because we've hung so much on belief and forgot how to just behold who you are. Behold the glory of your love, the glory of your welcome, the glory of your good news that is mystery and greater than we can ever comprehend. God, we thank you for all the good work that the saints before us have done to create this, this theological treatise that we can try to, 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 to pick apart and understand and know, but we return to that simple statement today. My Lord and my God, I make you Lord of my life, but you sit on the throne and my ego is diminished, and that I don't put politicians and money and other things on that throne, and I claim my God, that this story I've been wrapped into is of old and there are saints tenacious saints that have come before us 
to have paved this way and also struggled to believe that taught us how to behold. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our God, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, 